Hi there, today I'm with musician, composer and educator Laurie Watson and we chat about from where she's from and the Scottish borders to where she is now. It's a really interesting chat. If you enjoy these podcasts, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Simon Tumier. So hi Laurie, how's it going? Hi Simon, it's going well. Um, day 19 isolation at the moment. Living happily by the sea. Oh, that sounds lovely, especially as the sun's shining. Yeah, well, it comes and goes, but certainly there's a lot more sun on the east side. Nobody <laughs> told me that. 20 years in Glasgow, and I didn't realise that Edinburgh had 50% less rain. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you've recently started a brand new job. Yeah, yeah, kind of um, at the end of 2018, um, I moved to, I mean, I've, I've always done freelance music stuff, so this is kind of in, in addition to that. Um, I was working at the conservatoire in Glasgow with the Trad Music students, which is where I trained. Um, and now I am working at the School of Scottish Studies, or what was the School of Scottish Studies, it's now Celtic and Scottish Studies at Edinburgh University. And is it quite a different job to the, the Royal Conservatoire? Uh, yeah, different for lots of lots of reasons, but also similar. I mean, my subject material is very similar, and um, the the post that I applied for the the main kind of drive behind it was to create a new performance masters for traditional arts. So um, I guess I'm kind of diversifying a bit in that it's not just music anymore. I'm looking at dance and storytelling and how those arts combine. But of course. Um, in terms of professional output, traditional music is probably the most dominant of those art forms at the moment. So I'm still working with a lot of music and I teach the, the main courses to do with traditional music, um, song and um, ethnomusicology as part of the existing programmes at Celtic and Scottish Studies at Edinburgh. And I suppose that department is so famous for its archive as well. Do you get much of an opportunity to visit it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's written into all of our contracts that um, that we should be contributing to the archive. So creating new fieldwork, which is a passion of mine. As you know, you've been interviewed quite a few <laughs> times. <laughs> um, and also engaging with the existing sources and showing how they could be put to use. And... I suppose for me, um, my role includes how those sources can inform new creativity in Scotland and, and beyond. And um, I suppose that includes quite a lot of ethics in terms of the, the voices that uh, whose knowledge are in the archives and how, how we interact with that and use it. Um, but it also involves a lot of inspiration and uh, really opening up the, I think the variety and the richness of what's in there. It's our, it's our, kind of oldest, most established archive for Scottish culture. Um, it's world-renowned. We have over 33,000 audio recordings in the, the audio archive, and we've got a photographic archive and a beautifully curated library. So anything you need to know about Scottish culture and traditional arts, you'll find it in number 29 George Square in Edinburgh. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So I suppose that must be a, a bit of a, a dream from you, I suppose, because when I first met you all these many years ago now when you were a... Oh, that many. <laughs> so you were a, when I first met you, you were a finalist in the Radio Scotland Young Traditional Position Award. When was that? Oh, gosh. Uh, 2000, 2002. Oh, my goodness. The second yeah. one then. 
Yeah, the second one. And then I was on the first tour that we did in 2003. Yeah. <laughs> and, very uh, exciting times. <laughs> and uh, and uh, we ha- we've obviously connected quite a lot over the years. I remember that uh, we, we were making a series of videos all these years ago and you were talking about your basically your love of the Borders tradition and how you uh, love the music of Tom Hughes. Is that a big part of where you come from? Yeah, I, I think, um, I mean, I, I was born in Glasgow and we moved around quite a bit. But musically, I'm very much from the Borders um, in terms of my fiddle playing and my singing. And um, I've drawn influences from, from all over. Um, but yeah, the Borders tradition, it's kind of, I refer to it as a, a home tradition. So that audience is particularly scary for me. <laughs> and, uh, and that music and repertoire and the historical figures are particularly inspiring. They're very much part of my musical identity. And um, yeah, I think uh, although um, I, I work and create and write and record and, and gig and I'm involved in education, what's most exciting about working near the School of Scottish Studies involved with the School of Scottish Studies archives is that I just, I'll always be a learner. I'll, I'll always want to know more. And now I'm, I'm sitting right inside the treasure trove. So yeah, it's a dream come true. Your family is very musical though. I was reading this morning about your, your grandfather, your great grandfather and your mm. grandfather were also musicians. Yeah, I I think we've got where we've we've had lots of musicians in our family. Um, my mum's side's a bit more mysterious. But they apparently had lots of singers and fiddle players, but I don't really know much about that side at all. But that's what I do, obviously. Um, and then my dad's side, I think both sides of our family, for Innes and I, um, it was a combination of Glaswegians and Irish folk who had moved over to Glasgow. So we're part of that kind of Irish diaspora and the, the community in Glasgow. Um, and my mum and dad grew up with big family parties full of music. Everyone sang a song or played a tune. or um, <laughs> There was often dancing as well. Um, my granda played some accordion and my great-granda was a fiddle player and a cabinet maker. And he remade some fiddles. So... He bought some German trade fiddles and took them apart, remade parts of them, and kind of. Um, so we've, I think there's about seven fiddles that he has essentially made, um, and I learned on one. And Ennis still plays that fiddle; he's got it at the moment. He learned on it too. It's kind of the best of the seven. Uh, but we inherited his tune books, and you know, he's kind of marked his favourite tunes. So although we didn't meet him, his name was uh, Peter Augustus Meehan. We didn't really know him. Um, my dad was close with him, and I think um, that was a big part of my dad kind of uh, nudging us both towards music. Um, and so we do, we feel quite a connection there, um, as well as yeah, all the other songs and tunes and family musicians. As you were growing up, you were part of the Small Hall Band. That was a, yeah. That's a great organisation, that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> at the time... <laughs> I was there from the very beginning and it didn't feel like an organisation. Um, it was, it felt like a big family, you know, it was a bunch of parents and a bunch of kids and it kind of came about because we weren't really, we weren't getting traditional folk music in school or in the region at the time. 
Um, and there, there were, there was traditional music activity. There were great pub sessions and um, there were some great local players, both in terms of, there's a lot of dance music down there, but some of the kind of older and folk traditions as well. Uh, brilliant song traditions, but it wasn't really accessible to the young folk at the time, you know, kind of the idea of a summer school or youth camp or youth workshops was only just starting to happen in traditional music. So um, there was nothing up here, really. I went to an early folk works summer school. Um, and of course, now they're everywhere, which is brilliant. But um, Small Hall Band was a way of getting us all together and getting the tunes into us. And I remember my dad gave me a set of three reels. It was like, I remember what was on there. Fairy Dance was definitely in the mix and High Road to Linton. There was like three reels. And if I could memorise these three reels, he would take me to the local pub session. And that, <laughs> that was my first big motivation to start memorising repertoire and take it a bit more seriously. And uh, it was Liz involved at that point? Yeah, Liz Maroney was right from the beginning. Liz and Martin. Um, I think there was maybe five families, something like that, in the very beginning. And we would be meeting at each other's houses for, for tunes and lunch and whatever. And then it developed into, actually, let's rehearse something up and <clears throat> play a dance or play a concert. And so we started taking small gigs that were really good fun and gave us a reason to practice. And um, the social element kept us all together, you know, kept us going. And um, and the repertoire just kept coming. Before we knew it, we'd played every small hall in the Borders, which is kind of where the name, David King, who was in the band at the time, he came up with the name for the band. At what point did you come connected then to the the Borders traditions? Because tunes like the High Road to Linton, I, I would immediately put them together with the Borders. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> there's a lot of like non- Borders repertoire, which is really popular in the Borders. And as I said, the, the kind of the dance band traditions were are really strong down there. And um, even the kind of older players, once once I became aware and, and interested in what they were doing and kind of started to do my first uh, fieldwork trips, um, I was probably about 15, 16 when I was doing that. It was very much a kind of like a, I was consciously interested. I, I wanted to know more about what the borders could or should sound like. And um, and I was also aware that, well, if, if it's not immediately on the surface for me, then it must be really not very visible. So it was I felt like it was something that should be collected and maybe we should all be making an effort to learn it. Um, but even those players like Bob Hobkirk um, was very much involved in dance traditions and he had learned uh, a lot of his repertoire via the the wireless. So there would be the kind of weekly broadcast would come in, the dance music stuff. And he wasn't quite fast enough to pick up by ear, you know, from the broadcast. But his sister had an amazing memory and she didn't play. So she would memorize some of the tunes. She would catch some of them and then sing them to Bob, who would then learn them on the fiddle. And so a lot of the Borders repertoire, the, the contemporary repertoire is informed by Scottish dance band music. Um, but then they do have some local tunes, older tunes that have been written here over over the centuries. And we've got old collections as well, like the Calvert Collection, uh, published in Kelso. Um, and that collection has a whole mixture of different tunes, a lot of which are for dance, of course, um, but tunes with local titles from local folk, um, as well as tunes from further afield. 
That's interesting. I remember the piece that you recorded for our Food Stomping YouTube channel, which must be one of the highest viewed folk videos of all time. It's well over a million views, I think, of you yeah. playing two borders tunes. <laughs> I know. Who'd have thought it? That's totally brilliant. <laughs> and I, I remember being up at um, Blazing and Bewley, just dropped in to visit, see how they were going. And um, those tunes were played in a session and everybody knew them. Everyone was suddenly playing these border tunes. It was such a lovely thing because it's been a bit of a hidden tradition, you know. But the harmonies are beautiful and the... It, it just sounds different. We I remember the way you harmonised that piece of music. It, it wasn't like the rest of Scotland. No, and and actually, one of the things we discovered early on in S and I was that it really limits the accompaniment. <laughs> and it used to get really annoying because you couldn't do anything fancy, um, or in fact, anything much at all. It's um, because you're using the the open strings a lot more and that that really comes from the playing of, of Tom Hughes and Wattie Robson uh, and Jimmy Nagel as well to an extent um, and using the open strings a lot more so you're dealing with fourths and fifths all the time it's just I mean to my ear those sounds are just these little subtle bits of tension and release all through the tune they're just so earthy and beautiful um, but it really restricts the chords that you can put with it. So, um, but yeah, that's one of my favourite sounds. So that was your teenage years. Then you must be one of the the first students on the RSAMD course. Uh, I think I was the fourth intake. So the first graduate. So Alan Henderson, Ian McFarlane were just leaving as I came in, and then I think the year above me they added the fourth year on the honours year. So then everyone could do a four-year degree instead of three, which meant that we had a bigger community for longer and it was great. It was lots of collaboration. And it must have been a kind of perfect course for you because I know a lot of the musicians who were going on to that degree were really looking for a sort of performance-type degree, but that's not really what Joe Miller had designed with that degree at first. Am I right in saying that? Um, I think, yeah, I think performance and sharing and collaboration and creativity have always been a big part of you know of that program at rcs or rcmd as it was um but also being knowledgeable enough to articulate and understand and having the skills to continue to find out more about the music to so to understand the music in more ways than just the physical replication or the kind of creative interpretation of it but understanding the roots of it and the kind of our, I suppose, our ancestral community as well um, and collaborating with them rather than just, you know, uh, taking the music, doing your own thing and not connecting with where it's come from or how it's existed before. Um, so f I, I think early on the, the programme had more kind of, it had a lot of a community music content, which was brilliant for earning a living when you first finished. It had a bit of balance that like we had, we had dance and we had, um, well, different languages as well. It was for, when I joined the course, it was 1999. And um, I had never, I don't know what the mod was. I thought it was such a weird word. <laughs> I grew up in the borders and, and I, I knew about Gaelic language. I didn't know any, but you know, there was a, a few Gaelic speakers in the borders that were quite proactive. Yeah, it was completely, it was a big eye opener for me in terms of 
the richness and the variety of Scotland's different traditions. Um, and I think as, as our music scene has changed over time, it's bigger, we've got far more players, more, more specialists, and I think we, there's less need for you to know a bit of everything now, which was really what the programme provided in the beginning, and, and that's what we needed at the time. But now we've got several different kind of hotspots of, of learning and intensive development in terms of traditional music in Scotland. So I don't feel like everyone needs to know a bit of everything. I think we can all have our own corners now. It's quite quite a different landscape. So I think the programme there has adapted well to that. Mm, that's interesting. And I suppose you started meeting lots of people <clears throat> there and you made, was it two trio albums with uh, John Somerville and Innes, your brother? Uh, and they were quite experimental, I suppose, but never losing sight of the tradition. Yeah, I mean, the, the first of those was actually with Fiona Young on accordion and Barry Reed and Innes. Um, so I was working with, with all those guys at the time. Um, and that album, as I got to the end of my kind of four years of intensive learning and I'd, you know, I studied all these different fiddle traditions and a bit of the song stuff and also composition. I, was, I looked at composition when I was there and, and research and broadcasting. They were kind of my main interests in my final year. And yeah, I just realised I had this body of work and I knew that I was about to go off in a slightly different direction. I knew I was about to start exploring new ideas and I just wanted a document of the the sounds that I'd been making over the last three years. And so that's what we put down on the first album was kind of, yeah, repertoire that had been my favourite, that had kind of evolved and had become part of who I was at that time. Um, and then the second album second album was a bit different. The, the material on that was really more a result of touring and um, engaging with different audiences. So we did quite a few years of different tours throughout Europe and over to Cape Breton. And so I think the second one was much more kind of audience informed or it, it wasn't just a product of what we were doing, what was in our heads, but it was it was kind of a, a response to what folk had really enjoyed in our live shows. We also had some good times together with uh, you and your graphic scores. <laughs> yeah, good times. <laughs> Scaring the pants off folk musicians, I loved it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that that first still that I, I was on, that was like... Was that 2003, 2004, something like that? That was a big turning point for me because I had started, I was gigging with the trio and I had my own solo stuff that I was doing, different recital type themes. And I was working on my voice as well at the time. And yeah, I, the, my PhD was looking at, well, a completely different topic. And I did the distill and actually that was a big turning point. The, and the, the album that we just made of like kind of, um, what I'd been working on during my degree and kind of the, the kind of first professional repertoire that I'd developed. And I knew I was going to start to look at new, new ideas. I was interested in finding new things to explore and new challenges and just still provided that. And so, I com yeah, it completely turned things around. So the trio kept going and I still had my solo stuff, but suddenly I was doing really weird experimental. So like, okay, how, how far can we push this and where, where's the boundary for traditional music? <laughs> what could I make that traditional musicians would either like provoke a strong reaction or that they would 
it would change the way that they think about what tradition could be or will tell me very strongly this is not this is not part of what we do anymore that like you've crossed the line <laughs> um and so i kind of yeah i moved from being <clears throat> just a, a creative performer to being a, a composer that sometimes had to sit out of their work and watch other people grapple with it and um, from the research side, it told me a lot about how traditional musicians work and how we collaborate, how we perform, how we communicate in performance, um, which has been great for the courses that I run, but also my own practice and its knowledge I've been able to share back to other traditional musicians. Um, but mostly it was just a really inspiring creative work for me. I suppose you have definitely had a portfolio career uh, of performing and I suppose as you moved into your 30s, you were far more education and uh, you got your doctorate and then um, did a lot more lecturing. Is it, is it, do you really enjoy that? Yeah, I do really enjoy it. I do. Uh, I don't know if I was doing like a lot more. I think, um, I think the education work that I was doing had to change. So was, I mean, I have absolutely loved my portfolio career and um I know some folk are kind of warned that you know, you need to have one in order to make a living, but for me, um, it's the variety of of different activities and outputs and different communities to work with and different ways of thinking and doing, and um, I find it really engaging. I don't I don't think I would be happy doing just one thing all the time. Um, I know a lot of my kind of my colleagues in traditional music would would agree no matter what it is they do and what I found happened was that um in order to do the creative stuff and keep up the gigging and recording and which I absolutely love and it's not something I think I'll ever give up um it meant that the kind of education work I did had to change so my the youth workshops there was suddenly less of them and um, I wasn't going into high schools anymore and but I was doing more university level work so yeah as as my education output has changed uh, there's things that I really miss you know I, I don't do fiddle lessons anymore really I do a little bit of vocal work because um, the vocal lessons are kind of feeding into research that I'm looking at at the moment but it's it's kind of like how, how do I justify the different activities that I'm doing at any point and, and I do one of the things I miss the most is youth groups because I just loved it you know I love the silliness and I love their energy and the fun and how fast they think and work and um, it's exhausting but yeah I loved it. In 2018 and 19 you, you made a great set of recordings which was a lot of voice and electronics with Duncan Lyle. How many songs did you make? <clears throat> Don't know, I lost count. Yeah that was a really interesting project and it's ongoing, there's there's more in the pipeline but I, I, we, I think we developed a really good and different way of working for us so um, it's very much driven by my ideas and, and my arrangements and I wanted to find a way of working with Duncan where I could explore that new stuff and actually what I realised was it had to be quite different from the normal kind of like um, folk group collaboration or you know, like trad ensemble collaboration where there'd be lots of ideas and lots of noise making actually so I had to sit in silence quite a lot and Duncan had to put up with that. <laughs> he had to be really patient um, with me quietly finding the idea that I needed you know um, because we were very much driven by the song and so it was definitely kind of um, 
on, on my camp in terms of the, the decision making and interpreting the songs and understanding how much or, or what aspects I wanted to bring into the arrangements because the arrangements that ended up being really um, some of them are quite warm and multi-textured but some of them are really sparse you know there's a lot of space and so that whole process was about working really quietly and I said we developed or I developed a different a different kind of set of aesthetics as as a creative musician and um, I think they're here to stay <laughs> you know it, not necessarily electronics but just the the depth of the interpretation and uh, the kind of how meaningful I was able to make my singing of the lyrics and um, it was a really enjoyable process although you know there were tears at points and I remember one day I locked myself in the bathroom and I wouldn't come out. <laughs> That's a sign of a good project, I think, you know, when you, like feelings get really involved. Um, but yeah, I think that way of working like one song at a time meant that, you know, in past albums when I've kind of rehearsed it up as a group, and it's, I, I do love working that way. I love the collaboration, love other people's ideas in the work. And it's really important. But I think quite often I find it really, it's intense. And so I need a longer gap because... I don't know, there's a, it's more self-conscious because it's been so fast. The process has been really fast. Whereas one song each month, one at a time, it's got its own space. And actually I love every single one of them. And I love the little flaws where we like we agonise, should we fix that? Should we leave it? And actually some of the things we left have become our favourite things, you know? So it was, a, it was a really different way to work for us, um, but very enjoyable. Great, I look forward to the, the next batch. <laughs> Before we finish, what is next for you? Um, <laughs> what is next for me? I don't know. Uh, well, we're sitting in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> so everything, I mean, everything in my life has changed in the last three weeks. Um, <clears throat> so it's really hard to say what's coming next. I hope that my potatoes work out, the ones I just planted in the garden. That's, <laughs> that's about as long term as we can look. No, um, I've got a few different musical projects that will definitely go ahead because we're so lucky that like, we've got the studio in-house and the, you know Duncan and I live together and um, he's one of my main collaborators. So there are musical projects that will definitely go ahead. Um, more songs, there's some composition stuff and I've got... Um, I've got some more graphic score work that's happening. <laughs> it's just research and performance related. And, um, but I, I would love to set up a new ensemble, an Edinburgh-based-ish ensemble um, of kind of weird and art folk musicians who are trying new ideas, but, you know, have a grounding in trad. Um, the new programme at Edinburgh, of course, is going to go ahead, the new Masters in Traditional Arts Performance. Um, that is collaborating with a number of local festivals and events um, with venues like the Storytelling Centre and the Queen's Hall and Tradfest in May um, and the Fringe in, in August. And so it might be the case that that runs a year later than planned just because of current disruption. I really don't want to sacrifice the experience for the students. So it looks like we may well be deferring that to 2021 instead of 2020 as a start date. Um, but yeah, continuing with my, my work in traditional arts at Edinburgh and some, some new songs and 
sounds. Well, that's very exciting. Thanks very much, Laurie. <laughs> as if we all make it to June. <laughs> <laughs>